0: Good morning folks. Good morning. Uh, this morning we're continuing um, in our series looking looking at the book of James. Um, this morning I get the, the passage that actually gives the series its title uh, in terms of a faith that, that works. James chapter 2 uh, verses 14 to 16. Just before we read this passage and before we start to explore it, just Can I um, say a couple of things? First of all, um, I want to start by saying thank you to everybody who's been praying for me this week. Um, Some of you, if you're part of the WhatsApp group, you'll know that um, Lorraine, my wife, put out a request for prayer because my um, chronic fatigue um, exploded spectacularly this week. Um, Hasn't done that for a while. So it kind of made um, life in general a bit difficult. So I'm feeling considerably better. Um, So I really appreciate your prayers and I'm really grateful to the Lord for answering those prayers. The second thing, but like Jason, is that I really love the book of James. For me, it's a real privilege to to preach on this book and this passage in particular. But I'm aware that when I when I get excited, when I get enthusiastic, I speed up, uh, and that may cause problems for some of you. So um, I will apologise in advance um, if that's the if that's the case. So, let's read this passage: James chapter two, verses fourteen. 26, and it says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but if you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rehab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes we find it difficult to understand. Sometimes the problem is we understand it too well and we struggle to put it into practice. So we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we spend this time looking at this passage, that first of all, you would give us the understanding that we would know what your word means, that we would see its power, its strength, its beauty. But we also pray that you'd give us the spiritual strength and the strength of character by your Holy Spirit so that we can put your word into practice in our lives, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. Help us this morning, Heavenly Father, not just to be hearers of the word, but help us to do it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the interesting passage in James. This is the one that causes all the problems for James. You either love this passage or you hate it, and in the history of the church, some people have hated this chapter so much that they've questioned whether or not James should even actually be in the Bible at all. And the reason for that is because this is, the, this is the passage where we put up something like verse 24, that James says, that you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then we put it beside other passages in the Bible, for instance, uh, like uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, where someone else says, for we conclude that a person is justified by faith. Faith apart from the works of the law. And so we have this interesting thing where apparently one part of the Bible is contradicting another one. And so, of course, the, the, the exercise this morning is to find out how do we reconcile these two passages um, that speak about faith and works in completely different ways. Now, before I go any further, I want us just to, just to make sure that all of us are on the same page. We're going to talk a lot this morning about faith and about works, and most of us have a good idea or some idea about what we mean when we talk about faith. We have a good idea what we talk about in terms of what we talk about works, but that phrase justify, that's maybe one that's not so common. To, to be justified means that, that to be declared innocent or not guilty but it's to be declared innocent or not guilty when someone examines the facts or when someone looks at the evidence. So, for instance, um, we we sometimes talk about how his actions were justified given the circumstances. Um, It's becoming an almost weekly occurrence here in the UK that some politician or some cabinet minister is the subject of some inquiry into his or her behaviour. And most recently, um, we we lost um, the the chairman of the Tory party, the the party of government here in the UK, um, when an inquiry by the wonderfully entitled Prime Minister's ethics advisor looked at how he handled his tax affairs and concluded that he had not behaved in a right and proper manner. He was not justified, quite the opposite. He was condemned because of his behaviour. Perhaps a more controversial example is you will be aware that there are now five policemen in the States who are now on trial and the question that is going to be determined by a judge at that trial is, was the use of force um, during an arrest that led to the death of a suspect justified or not? That's another example. So justification can be a a legal process, if you like, but it's looking at someone's actions and determining whether or not on the basis of those actions is this person right or wrong? Are they innocent? Are they guilty? So just keep that in mind. The second thing I want us to to think about before we go any further is is this Since the publication of what was called the Geneva Bible, a way back over 500 years ago, the Geneva Bible was, was unique for two reasons. First of all, it was unique because it was one of the first translations in English. Up until then, Bibles were always published in Latin. And if you didn't know Latin, you were stuffed. You couldn't read the Bible. You couldn't understand the Bible. The second thing that made the Geneva Bible unique was it was the first Bible to be published where it broke everything up into chapters and verses. Before that, Bibles Bible was just published the text and you just read it, big blocks of it, and that was it. But we've got so used to our modern translations containing verses and chapters that, not, that have nothing to do with the actual original text that we, we missed that. And... While chapters and verses are very useful, and that's why they were put in, because they help us to be able to find things quickly, they make it easy for us to memorize parts of Scripture, they make it easy for us to share parts of Scripture with people. The downside to chapters and verses is that modern translations make it more difficult because sometimes they put in, they put in chapter headings. And so what happens is we, we're getting a mentality where when we read the Bible, we read it in chunks put it into boxes and into containers. And sometimes the problem is that what we're missing is that when we're reading a passage of scripture, it's not this bit, this bit, and this bit. But what the writer is trying to say is here's an idea, and out of that idea comes this implication, and this implication, and this implication, and we miss the flow of what the writer's actually trying to say. So, last week um, Mark spoke about avoiding the sin of favoritism. This week I'm talking about faith and works. And next week, I know not who, is, is it going to be TJ? Next week, you get to speak, get to speak a, a, about taming the tongue. It just seems a wee bit random. <laughs> favoritism, faith and works, and controlling how you talk. Until you start to actually look a wee bit closer and you see that last week when uh, in the passage that when Mark was speaking about about treating people fairly, about not showing favoritism, about not showing prejudice and bigotry towards other people, James says this, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Next week, not to box TJ in, but the passage that he's going to be reading in verse in chapter 3, begins with these words. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. And then there's me right here in the middle. And this is where my verse 24 fits in, where it says that you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you now see the thread that's running through James? It's this idea of judgment. That's what holds James's thoughts together. This idea of, the, the, of judgment, of standing before God and God examining your life and examining what you've done. Now, um, Mark, very helpfully, at the beginning of this year, actually preached on judgment. And I would encourage you, Um, to, to go back and go and look on YouTube and to find that sermon and to listen to it again because you will find that sermon to be really, really helpful in understanding James and understanding James's thought and the thread of judgment that runs right through the book of James. Mark, when he was preaching on that, covered two very important facts. The first one is this, that the Bible teaches that there is coming a day when every single person who has ever lived, or who will ever live. Every single human being who has ever breathed will stand before God in judgment. And so we have this passage of Revelation, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So here's a coming day of judgment for every human being, for every single person. But Mark also pointed out that there is also going to be a day of judgment for every single Christian. And again, the passage that we look at says that each one's work will become obvious for the day Again, the Day of Judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that has been built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, um, like I said... I want you to go and look at Mark's sermon. I'm not going to comment any more in these two passages other than to point out two things. One is that there is the Bible talking about a future judgment, and it says that future judgment is based on God looking at people's works, people's actions, what people have done, which fits perfectly with what James is saying about the importance of works. So this future final judgment, whether it's the judgment of all people or whether it's the specific specific judgment of Christians' works and actions, is always in James' mind when he talks about whether it's how we treat people, whether he talks about how we serve God, or whether it's how we speak and act and treat other people. In other words, what we do is just as important as what we believe. We've only got this one letter of James that's caused so much controversy in the life of the church. We've got about 13, possibly depending on your view, 14 books of Paul. And so it's dead easy to read the full breadth of Paul's letters and understand what Paul's thinking. But when you've only got one conversation from someone, it's really difficult to understand fully what's in that person's mind and what they're actually saying and what they're trying to mean. So, for quickness, I'm going to summarize Paul, but what the Bible in general teaches about about faith and about believing in Christ. And I'm going to summarize it like this. The Bible teaches that on the cross, when Jesus died, God performed an amazing swap. God transferred the punishment for every wrong thing that you or I have done, will ever do. God transferred the punishment that we deserve for disobeying him, for rebelling against him, for not listening to him, for not following him, for not keeping his commandments. He took the punishment for that and he transferred that to Jesus, who had never done a single thing wrong. But it's a two-way swap. Jesus gets the punishment for all the wrong things that we have done, But the perfect obedience that Jesus gave to God gets transferred to us and to everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. The Bible puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. It says that God, he made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. you really... Really need to look at that verse and think about that. That in God's eyes, because of the cross, we are the righteousness of God. That God looks at us and then he looks at Jesus and he says that we are not guilty. And that's the point when our name gets put into what Revelation calls the book of life. Because of what Jesus has done. Nothing that we've done. It happens in a minute. It happens in an instant. And yet it lasts for all eternity. It's that simple. And what James is trying to say is, you're telling me you have this faith. that You've put this trust in Jesus that means that you are forgiven, that God will look at you in the day of judgment, and he won't see your works. He'll see the works of Jesus, and he'll say that you're not guilty. You say you've got that faith. Well, James says, that's fine. But what difference does that faith make? Because head knowledge doesn't cut it. That's why James says, even the demons know all the facts about Jesus. The demons know that Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man. The demons know that Jesus was God in human form. The demons know that when Jesus died on the cross, that he did that to take away our sin, our guilt. But it doesn't make them happy. He says, in fact, it makes them shudder. Why? Because they know the judgment that's coming, and they know that because they cannot, they will not accept the the sacrifice of Christ in their place, they know that when that judgment comes, that judgment is going to be guilty, and that they are going to be condemned, and they are going to be separated from God for all eternity. That's why for demons, the knowledge of who Jesus is, Head knowledge, might, well, it might be, is a frightening thing, and not a, a not a, a a wonderful, freeing, peaceful thing. Head knowledge is what James is trying to say, doesn't cut it. You can know who Jesus is, you can know what the Bible says, but if it's not actually in your heart and in your mind and making a difference, it's useless. I can know the highway code inside out, and I had to check this this morning. I believe that when you set your test in certain parts of the world, you've got to read the driver's ed manual. Is that correct? So you've got to know about turn signals, and when. Apparently you have this wonderful thing in the States where you can go through a red light and turn right? Yes. Oh, we have an expression in Scotland. That gives me the heebie-jeebies, okay? (laughs) I can read the highway code, and I can know all about how speed limits are a good thing. And I can know the importance of stopping at red lights. But will just reading the highway code make me a good driver if I never actually get behind the wheel of a car? If I tell you I'm a good driver. And I can quote you all the good bits of the highway code, and I can tell you what all the road signs mean, if I can tell you what the red, white, blue, and amber lights on a motorway mean, then how do you actually know just because I tell you I'm a good driver? By the way, I want to tell you right now, everybody tells you they're a good driver. (laughs) Isn't that funny? If I tell you I'm a good driver, but actually I've got 15 points on my driving licence, if I tell you I've got a stack of uh, parking tickets, would you believe I'm a good driver? I used to, I used to um, share a carpool with an engine. this is a complete random by the way, um, I used to carpool with, a, with an engineer in, in the place I worked in, and his nickname was Billy Graham. And the reason why he had that nickname was not because he was a wonderful Christian, but because five minutes in the car with him, you believed in God. You were calling on God. <laughs> you would sit in his car and you would sing, Neither my God to thee. <laughs> so here's what James is saying. Okay, you can tell me that you're trusting in Jesus. You can recite scripture, reams of it. You can pray wonderful prayers. But when I look at your life, what you do, how you speak, how you treat people, do all of these things show me that Jesus is really in your life? Like I said earlier on, when we look at this passage, people like to compare it to ones like this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Here we go again with verses and chapters. Because you can't quote those two verses and not add in the one that comes right after it, which says, and our congregation should be able to sing this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Isn't it really funny how folk shout at James for saying the importance of works, and yet we cut off the very passages that say the importance of works? It's not that James is contradicting the rest of the Bible. We just don't appreciate that that, uh, the rest of the Bible agrees with James. Okay. You don't become a Christian just to sit about on your born-again backside waiting for Jesus to come back. God has given you a plan and a purpose for your life. And again, this is one of these things I can't stress enough for people. You need to understand how unique every single one of us are. God does not create billions of human beings and then decide, what am I going to do with you all? Every single one of us was designed by God with a plan and a purpose in mind. And that's why it says that when we become a Christian, God has already got a list of good works that he's prepared ahead of us to do, and that might be feeding 250 people. It might be painting a building. It might be flying all the way to Scotland to knock plaster off of a wall. It might be to preach. It might be to share your people, your faith with other people. The big, the big part, part, one of the biggest parts of the Christian life is learning to spend time with God. That's what Ramsay was saying earlier on. Up until now, he's, he's quite happy in terms of knowing what he believes is God's will for his life. But he needs to pause every so often along the way and ask the question, am I still going in the right direction? Am I still doing the works that God's planned for me or not? The Bible says that we come to Jesus just as we are. But the challenge is the Bible says that we don't stay just as we are. So James is asking, where's this evidence that will be tested by fire on that second judgment? I can't see your faith that's going to save you from that first judgment. But I should be able to see the evidence of that faith that will be tested by fire at the second judgment. I've got some news for some people here this morning. Good people don't go to heaven. When you ask someone, do you think you're going to heaven? Wrong answer is to say, I hope so, because I'm a good person. Not going to work. Good people don't go to heaven. But people who know that they will never, ever be good enough to go to heaven and therefore realize they have no other choice but to put their trust in Jesus, and what Jesus has done for them, that great swap on the cross, those are the people who are going to heaven. So today, if you are still trying to buy your own ticket to heaven, the good news is you can just give up right now. It doesn't matter whether you live for 70, 80 years, however long gives you, you can do all the good things you possibly can. And I'm not saying that treating people with respect, showing love, showing kindness, giving to charity, volunteering in charity shops or whatever are bad things. Absolutely not. What I'm saying is never ever be under the impression that that's going to impress God so much that he is going to let you into heaven the only thing that gets us into heaven is faith and trust in Jesus. To quote a well-known hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling and That's it. So this morning, that's my question to you is, have you realized that? That you can know for absolute certainty, it sounds astoundingly arrogant for me to stand here this morning and say, I am going to heaven. And it would be if I could point to all the good things I've done in order to make that happen. I could feel proud of myself and what I've done if I can say I've managed to earn my way into heaven. I could look down at our people and say I'm so much better than you because I've got my ticket to heaven. Nope. I'm going to heaven. In spite of who I am, in spite of what I've done, because it's all down to Jesus. Nothing whatsoever to do with me. I said a minute ago that Jesus takes all the punishment for the things that we've done wrong. And God takes the sorry, God takes the punishment for all the wrong things we've done and puts them in Jesus. That sounds really, really unfair. And something I keep on reminding people is, you know, the last thing you want from God is fairness. Because if God treated us fairly, heaven's going to be a big empty place. So thanks for a God who is, and this is wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway. Thank you for a God who is unfair. Thank you for a God who is just and merciful. That's a better way of putting it. You can know that with certainty today that you can say, if someone says to you, you're going to heaven, And your answer won't be, no, I'm not because I hope so, because I'm a good person. But you can turn around and say, I am going absolutely, because I have a good God. And to those of us who are proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior, I've got a challenge for all of us, not just for you, but for us. And I know that you people have come here this morning to share the gospel with people. But let me ask you this question. If we never told people that we were a Christian, if we didn't tell them we go to church, if we didn't tell them we read our Bible, if we didn't tell them that we pray, would they know anyway? And if we do tell them we're a Christian, what's their response? Do they look at us and stare at us blankly or do their jaw drop? Or do they look with an eyebrow raised and think, okay, that explains a few things. And just to finish, God has given some people the wonderful gift of being able to share their their faith with people, and it is a gift from God. Not all of us have that, and sometimes the, the problem is that we feel guilty because we can't share our faith with people as well as others. We don't find the words or the opportunities to share them. And I want to finish with this thought this morning. If that's you this morning, if you're feeling guilty because you don't know how to share your faith with somebody, well, do you know, maybe you already did. You just didn't say anything while you were doing it. Let's finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you that there is nothing for us to do except to put our trust in Jesus to say, I am not good enough, but Jesus did it all for me. Thank you that your word says that for as many as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Thank you that when you look at us, you don't see our sin or failure. But you see Jesus. We thank you that you are an amazing God. You treat us like the finished article. And We pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to help us to catch up with you, to submit to your spirit and humility and to let him work in us and change us and transform us so that we actually become more like Jesus. We ask this in his name, amen. Just before I sit down, can I just encourage you this morning that we, as we do every Sunday, we have the Lord's table prepared. And I want to invite you this morning, if you know that you've put that faith and trust in Jesus... This table's yours. It's not for the people of Denison Baptist Church. It's not for the members of Denison Baptist Church. It's for everybody who has made that step and that commitment. And as you come to this table this morning, as you take this bread, let's remember the words of Jesus who said, this is my body given for you. There's that swamp. And to thank Jesus for the fact that he stood in your place and he took the punishment that you deserved. That he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we will never know and understand that experience. Take this wine this morning. Let's remember it's a symbol of Jesus giving his life for us. But let's also remember that it's a symbol of new life that we receive when we ask Jesus to come into our life. So as Paul is leading us in worship this morning, just feel free when you want to just to come up and take the bread and wine.